Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing? It's neat to get out there and just let your light shine in the culture. And, you know, nobody knew we were going to do that. Now, those of you that are guests, you're wondering, what was that? We infiltrated 11 restaurants, and nobody knew that we were going to stand up and sing. And we stand up and sang. And I met two preachers, and the one that I was, I was at Outback, where all preachers go. And, and uh, I met two preachers who didn't know we were going to do it. Now, here's the neat thing I found out. Crossroads Church, which I think is in Arlington, and First Baptist Burleson announced to their people that we were going to do this, and Crossroads had 10 people in our restaurant to sing with us. So that was neat. I like that. And I was telling the first service, did you notice that the amen was at IHOP? Did you notice that? I mean, amen. Yeah, IHOP. So that was apropos. Anybody here like IHOP like I do? Yeah. All right. So we're going to do that again, another flash mob we're going to do at Christmas time and infiltrate more restaurants with a Christmas carol. Uh, folks, we're just getting out there and letting them know that God lives and Jesus is good and loves you and can bless you. And I, it, it really blessed me. Now, we're back to our series on blockbuster, Bible blockbuster miracles. There's a lot of, I mean, the, the, the whole Bible is a book of miracles. But I'm picking out blockbuster miracles that really particularly leap out at me. And I've been naming them after reality TV shows, that is these messages, so that you'll remember them. So today I'm doing Extreme Makeover. Now, if you never saw Extreme Makeover, it's just simply this. They take average people, run-of-the-mill, everyday folks, and take them away from their families for a while. And they will do things like plastic surgery, hair, workout, weight loss, makeup, you name it. They redo them. They renovate them. Then, of course, comes the big finale and the show. And out from behind the stage comes the person that had the extreme makeover and their family cries and screams and faints because they look so different. The husbands are going, praise God. And the wives are going, all right. Well, I want to talk to you today about an extreme makeover that puts all of those extreme makeovers in the shade. Let's look at Mark 5, 1 through 5, and I'm going to talk about the madman of Gadara, the Gadarene demoniac. Let's read about him, and as we go to these passages, I want you to know I'm not glorifying the devil. Matter of fact, I came to preach Jesus up and the devil down. But I want to, I want to also keep in mind that we have an enemy, and what we're about to see is the worst the enemy can do the worst he can do in a life. And what we're going to see in this story is that the worst the devil can do is not even close to a match when faced with the power of Jesus Christ. That as bad as Satan can do, Jesus can change it in a flash. So let's read this. Then they came to the other side of the sea. Now, quickly, they crossed the sea this is where Jesus had to stand up in the boat and tell the wind and the waves to stop. So they've already seen Jesus speak to the storm without, the storm of nature. 
They're about to see him speak to a storm within, a storm in the soul. So they're landing now on the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, that is Jesus, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And this wasn't Halloween. He had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains that had been, had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, not by the power of God, but by the power of the devil in him. So this was a man experiencing supernatural strength that was evil. And neither could anybody tame him. He was incorrigible, uncontrollable, and always, night and day, look at this life. Look at what de the devil did to him. Always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself, self-destructive, with stones. Now, that's a brief biographical sketch of the worst the devil can do. Let's pray together and ask God to show us what Jesus can do now. Father, we just thank you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Thank you, you were anointed, Lord, to deliver people. May your deliverance flow today in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen, you're going to need this. You're going to need this. I have a challenge for you right before I speak that I want to ask some of you to pray about Coming on Saturday night, just one time a month, pick one weekend a month, say, okay, we'll go Saturday night, and just see if you like it, because we're wanting to, in this service particularly, we're overflowing with children, and that's great. We want them, but we're actually having to open up the fellowship hall to make room for the children, and I just love that, because we're getting them when they're young and teaching them the Word of God. So pray about just, well, let's just pick second week, third week, fourth week, and go on Saturday night. We got full children's ministry, full youth ministry, free food. You get the snacks out there and the meals in here, right? You get the snacks out there and the meat in here. Now, again, I'm not glorifying the devil, but let's look at what the devil does to somebody, what he would do to everybody if he could. This account of a demon-possessed man is one of the great blockbuster miracles of the Bible. It's a radical transformation. It presents to us the story that we just read, the worst of the worst of demon possession cases. The gathering demoniac is the poster child for what Satan will do to a human being when he's unrestrained. When he opens enough doors, he's the poster child. For Satan's will for your life. Yeah, Satan's got a, a, an assignment for your life, and we just looked at it. We just read about it. Jesus rightly said, Satan has only come to kill, steal, and destroy. We have an enemy, and we just read about what his assignment is. It's to kill, steal, destroy, torment, ruin what God has created. This really chilling account forbids us from denying the reality of an evil spiritual world that seeks to bind and torment mankind. 
Now, our postmodern churches and postmodern preachers like to stand up in the pulpit and say, well, now, this was just the first century terminology for mental disease. Uh, this is just first century talk. That When somebody was disturbed, they didn't have Freud, they didn't have psych- modern-day psychology, so they called it a demon. But, it, but that was just metaphorical. It was illustrative. It was not really a, an evil spirit. There's not really evil in the world. And so the postmoderns love to preach that. Now, here's what I say to the postmodern preachers. You don't have the authority to take what the Bible clearly, plainly lays out and change it. Because when the Bible speaks metaphorically or illustratively, it tells you so. This is plain, open, clear, simple language. Do you know that the majority of Jesus' ministry, at least a quarter of his ministry, When he was on the earth, was casting out evil spirits from people. Jesus called them evil spirits. So Ephesians 6 tells us that we battle not against principalities, or not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Our battle is not with human beings, ultimately, but principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness that is placed in heavenly places, describing a satanic hierarchy that there is a satanic hierarchy in a fourth dimension. The fourth dimension is what you can't see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. But we are told by the Scriptures it is there. It's where the battles take place that really matter. So Paul wants us to take away the veil, lift the veil, and realize that our battle is not ultimately with people, but with beings, with creatures, with fallen spirits that have set themselves against God. And this is what Jesus encountered all the time. C.S. Lewis wrote these words, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Well, we're not going to do that, but we're not going to deny them either. Because we have been placed here, folks, to do battle to wage war against the enemy and his works. The Bible says of Jesus Christ, he went about everywhere doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. That was the ministry of Jesus. And how many of you can testify, before I was saved, I was definitely oppressed of the devil? Come on. That's right. Now let's look a little bit more closely at this gathering demoniac and and look at uh, what Satan does to a person. The man who appeared from the tombs to meet Jesus is the ultimate and a tragic figure. He was the victim of forces that were beyond his control. He was literally driven night and day by evil spirits that had taken possession of his life. He was a danger to himself. It says he was cutting himself with stones. And this, this trend in our day of teenagers that we call cutters, they, they cut themselves. I want you to know that the root of that is demonic and it's got, it's got an, a, a satanic root because Satan drives people to destroy the beautiful creation of God. This man was the original cutter, cutting himself with stones. Attempts had been made to restrain him, and they had failed. He snapped steel chains like they were made of paper mache as Samson was able to do mighty feats of strength under the anointing of God as a Nazarite and a man of God, this man 
was anointed of the devil, and he had supernatural power. He snapped chains. They could not tame him, contain him. He was incorrigible. He was uncontrollable. He was pitifully tormented, crying out in great distress, night and day, roaming among the tombs with no peace, no hope, no future, nobody to comfort him. Let your sanctified imagination go a little bit and think of what a sad sight he was and why Jesus, who was way on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, knew about him because he was God and said, he's worth, one man is worth me loading all you disciples and going across the street of the sea and encountering a terrible storm and calming the storm and getting to the other side just to reach this one poor man. No other person recorded to have had demons in the New Testament was as bad as this guy. The Bible reveals many telltale signs of demonic influence. The Bible is very clear about it. In some passages of Scripture, you find that demonic influence causes physical ailments. It can cause people to say things that they should not say. Even James chapter 3 tells us that our tongue as believers can be set on fire by hell. And we can say hellish things, hellacious things, uh, even as believers, if we turn our tongue over to anger or to some other spirit, and we will say things we really regret. Blasphemy, inability to speak, being rendered dumb, epileptic symptoms, cursing, blindness, these things in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, you can read about them. In other cases, the demon causes the individual to do evil things. Judas is the best example. Followed Jesus for three to three and a half years. Think about it. Saw him walk on water, deliver people of demon spirits, heal the sick, raise the dead, open blind eyes and deaf ears. He saw all of that. But Jesus said to him at the first communion service, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he turned to Judas and said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. He already announced to the group, somebody's going to betray me. And the Bible says in Luke 22, verse 3, Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas. And he went out and betrayed the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Driven, clearly influenced by an evil influence. In Acts 16, you had a young damsel woman, a young lady following the disciples around saying this, these men are preachers of the Most High God. They're telling you the truth. Only problem was she was exalting men and not the Christ they preached. And so Paul turned around and said, come out of her, because she had a spirit of divination. This girl had the ability to know things beyond her own learning that an evil spirit was telling her and her masters were making money off of her, and the devil came out, and that's how and why Paul and Silas were thrown into jail and they had the original jailhouse rock as they worshiped Jesus in the midnight hour. And the Philippian church was born. The whole thing started by the casting out of an evil spirit. We read also of King Saul, who, as he began to depart from God and rebel against God, it says he became troubled by an evil spirit, quoting the Bible, which produced in him a melancholy mood and an increased desire and readiness to kill David, God's next anointed king of Israel. When somebody is demonized, they always attack what God loves. They attack God's anointed. 
They attack what God is on. They attack God's work. They attack God's word. They attack God's son. They attack the reality of God. Because evil spirits hate God and are at war against him. Now, in the case of the demoniac of the Gadarenes, he had supernatural strength. He cut himself, self-destructive, roamed around naked, the Bible says, and lived among the tombstones. What a tragic figure. For the record, there's 52 references to demon possession in the Gospels, as well as other examples in the book of Acts. I've, in my ministry, I've run across demon possession several times. It's not pleasant. I don't like it. I'll tell you the truth. I don't. But I've seen people delivered of demons. It's very powerful. It's very somber. And when God does it, they get very free. They haven't gone anywhere. Neither has God. Neither has Christ. But the evil spirits that Jesus encountered, they haven't gone anywhere. Their judgment hasn't happened yet. They will be judged according to the book of Revelations. And their lot and their future and their fate is the book of, uh, or the lake of fire. But they're not there yet. We see that these evil spirits recognized in Jesus, not just a great healer, but recognized in Jesus a spiritual power and presence of an altogether higher order from themselves. We find them regularly yelling out Jesus' real identity when the rest of the world didn't even know who he was. He came to his own and his own received him not, said John. But these spirits knew him as soon as they saw him like they were meeting an old acquaintance, and they were. They were meeting an old acquaintance because Jesus was God wrapped in flesh. He had always been and always will be. There is no beginning and no end to Christ for Christ was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So it was Jesus Christ said himself, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's talking about his judgment. When he sinned against God, God cast him to the earth. He became a disembodied spirit, and he became judged. And that's when we meet him in the Garden of Eden as an already judged serpent. And Jesus said, I saw it. I was there. So when they encountered Jesus, you had ancient spirits meeting the ancient of days. And they said, Mark tells us, whenever the evil spirit saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. They knew who he was. They had dreaded his appearance. Way back in the Garden of Eden, when God judged Satan, he said, I'm going to raise up somebody. He's going to be the bruiser of your head. He's going to destroy you. He's going to ruin your work. He's going to be your judge. And from the moment God said that, Satan feared the arrival of the Messiah, the one who was born in Bethlehem. He came to save us from our sins and to destroy the works of the devil, the, the power of death, the power of hell, and the power of the grave. And they, they feared his appearance. And now their nemesis, the one they had so feared, finally had arrived. And the anointing had come upon him. And he was going about everywhere, ruining what Satan had done. The Bible suggests, and, and I really do believe this, that the arrival of Jesus Christ to our planet brought an outbreak of evil spirits. Everywhere that he went, they manifested. They arose in great anger at the one who had come to destroy their kingdom. They manifested their anger and their fear in the streets. They manifested in church, in a synagogue. Satan went to church. And sometimes he still does. Don't look at your neighbor and don't worry, I'm not talking about you. But Jesus cast a devil out of, uh, out of a man in synagogue and now the devil is confronting the Lord 
is manifesting in front of the Lord in a graveyard, in the streets, in the synagogue, in the graveyard. It didn't matter. There was an outbreak of evil spirits when Jesus arrived. It was like he flushed them out. The Bible suggests that in the last days there may be a similar satanic outbreak. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.1, In later times some will abandon the faith and follow, watch, deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Paul said in the last days, in the last times, before the coming of Christ, there's going to be an outbreak of spirits that are going to be deceptive, seductive, and they're going to even lure away believers to listen to teachings that are not godly. And I believe we're seeing an outbreak of satanic activity right now. Look at our world. Look at what's happening. The bloodshed, the terrorism, the crime, the fear, the rape, the pillage, everything that is going on in such an increased level. Israel under the gun, surrounded by enemy nations that are saying every single day, we want to wipe them off the face of the map. That is demonic. That is demonic outbreak. That is Satan's hatred of the apple of God's eye. Now, the miracle of this man's blockbuster deliverance took place in three important stages. And I want to show you how he got free because it's how I got free. It's how you'll get free because we live in a day where untold thousands, as we speak, are tormented by the devil on one level or another. If we could be God and just look at one square mile around this church, we would see people tormented bound, crying in the night, unable to sleep, wondering what to do, full of fear, full of doubt, full of bondage, chained up in their own tombstone, as it were. And that's why God puts local churches where he puts them, because we're not supposed to be a holy club. We're supposed to be an anointed congregation of people that know the name of Jesus and can go out and set them free. That's our calling. One preacher who ministers in New York City wrote these words, quote, For years it's been party time around the clock in New York with no limits. Yet all of this pleasure madness ends in anguish cry. Eventually the highs become lows. They always do. That cannot be lifted. The alcohol, pot, cocaine, and meth become a monkey on the back, screaming for more, more, and more until it possesses the entire mind and soul and body. He goes on to write, when the man of Gadara cut his flesh, he was being prompted by evil spirits to destroy himself. So it is with this generation. In the deep hours of the morning in New York City, you begin to hear wails coming up from the city streets. These are the cries of tormented souls whom the devil has enslaved and possessed. He goes on. In any hospital emergency ward on a Friday or Saturday night, you can see the result of Satan's work. Horrid sights of self-destruction from drugs and alcohol, attempted suicides gone awry, and so forth. And then he closes. Yet these cries aren't just being heard in urban areas like New York. In the past decade, a plague has swept middle America, including rural areas. Satan has now found new devices to possess and torment on a massive scale. It's wartime. But I want to say in light of what we just read... Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Can you say that with me? We have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Freed people, free people. 
Happy people make people happier. Bound people bind people. But freed people set others free. Have you been set free? Then God has called us to the ministry. Amen. Now, why does a message about the madman of Gadara matter to us today? Because multitudes around us live in tombs of self-destruction. They're harassed or tormented by evil spirits. And we know the one who alone can set them free. And it's not Buddha, and it's not Confucius, and it's not Muhammad. There's only one Savior, one Messiah, one who shed his blood for our sins, one who defeated death, hell, and the grave. There's only one anointed King of kings and Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the devils fear that name. They fear that name. I want you to know, church, that as surely as Jesus heard the cries of that possessed man from way across the sea, he hears the cries of Satan's victims today, and he responds to each and every one of those cries, and I believe that we as a church are going to see multitudes, and in our generation, multitudes are going to be delivered by the power of Christ, by people who know that name. Can you say with me, there's power in the name of Jesus The devils believe and tremble at the power of that name, at the mention of that name. Now, in this powerful account, I believe that Jesus is giving us an illustrated sermon on how to respond to the cries that emanate from the tombs of torment around us today. First, what did this man do to get free? Because the Bible says he was this way a long time, too long. Well, first... Catch this. I love the Word of God. It says in Mark chapter 5, verse 6, when Jesus was still a distance away, the man saw him from afar and ran to meet him. Oh, I love that. Some people run away from God. This man said, there's the one and the only one who can set me free. I believe he can set me free. When he saw Jesus from a distance, something in him said, there's something different about that man. There's something unusual about him. I don't know how I know it, but I know that that man is the way that I'm going to be set free. And he ran to meet him. He ran in the right direction toward the only one who could set him free. Folks, we're talking about spiritual freedom. We're talking about the enemy having to let go of your life. We're talking about suicidal thoughts being rebuked. We're talking about satanic assignments being canceled. We're talking about the enemy having to leave you alone. We're talking about one who is mightier than the devil, stronger than the devil, greater than the devil, who's already defeated the devil. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. But Jesus made it clear he wasn't talking about an idea or a philosophy or a worldview or a way of looking at things. He said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. So when Jesus said, you will know the truth and it'll set you free, what he was saying is you will know me, and I, in knowing me, will set you free. This is not religion. This is not rehabilitation. This is not a New Year's resolution we're talking about. We're talking about a supernatural transformation of the inner man and a supernatural deliverance from the power of the devil. But the man didn't stop there. He ran towards him, and then the Bible says, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. He said, he did this. 
He said, oh, Jesus. Now picture this. He's naked. He's bleeding. He's been cutting himself. He's wild-haired. He's wild-eyed. The whole town has been gripped with fear because of him. It was because of him they locked their doors at night and, and closed the windows. And he runs to Jesus, and he instinctively knows, if I'm going to be set free, I've got to submit to his authority. So he bowed low before him. Do you know the Bible says that submitting to Jesus' lordship is the prerequisite to deliverance? People say, oh, I got saved 20 years ago, and I think I'm ready to make him Lord. Where would you get your theology? The Bible knows nothing about getting saved and later just kind of crawling towards lordship. The minute you got saved, he's Lord. The minute you got saved, he's the boss. The minute you got saved, he took the steering wheel. You, you got to let some of you live your life. You, you got one part of that steering wheel, and he's got the other, and you're fighting him. Listen. Let go, get in the passenger seat, buckle the seat belt, and get ready for a good ride. Because Jesus is Lord. Can you say with me, He is Lord? You don't make Him Lord, He's already Lord. You let Him be the Lord of your life. He makes the decisions who you run with, who you fellowship with, where you work, where you live, where you go. He's the boss, applesauce. And when you let him be the Lord, then he will bless you with everything he's got. Amen. James wrote, and here's the pattern, therefore submit to God, then resist the devil and he will run away from you. If you're not submitted to the Lord, you're going to church on Sunday, and the rest of the week you're just living the way you want to, and you go to rebuke the devil, he laughs at you. But you bow your life to the Lordship of Christ, then you've got a power to say to the enemy, get off of my life, get out of my house, get off my finances, off my children, off my marriage, off of me, leave, and he'll do it. Because it says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will run away from you. Amen. So he, he ran to Jesus, this wild-haired, wild-eyed, naked, bleeding, beat-up, tragedy of a man. He bowed low before him, and then he confessed to him. Now, this story intrigues me, and I'm going to tell you why. Because all through the Bible, when Jesus cast the devil out, it immediately left. There was no argument, no debate, nothing. They just left. No fighting with them all night long. They just left. But not here. It says that when Jesus told that devil to come out, it says, quote, with a shriek, he, the demon, screamed and said, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. Now listen to the next statement. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. But he didn't come out. What is he doing? He's shrieking. He's arguing. He's pleading. He's hanging on. And I say, what in the world is going on there? And then it becomes clear. Something else needed to be done. Jesus said, what is your name? What is your name? Now, 
Why does that matter? Because you see, this man had open doors in his life. Jesus said, you're going to have to be truthful with me. If you're going to get set free, you're going to have to be truthful. Folks, let me tell you something. You can fool a lot of people. You can shuck and jive a lot of people, but you can't shuck and jive God. You can't fool him. God never sits in heaven and says, well, I'll be. We, we, we say, oh, I just don't know if I can tell God what I did. He'll, he'll, he won't love me anymore. Listen, he already knows what you did. Well, why do you think he's not going to love you? He still loves you. He already knows what you did. He, he know, knew what you were going to do before you even did it. He read your thoughts from far away, said Psalms 139. Before you sat down, he knew where you were going to sit down. And before you got up out of bed, he knew where you were getting up from out of bed. He's omnipresent, omniscient, om, uh, omnipotent. He knows all, sees all, has all power. He knows. So, so Jesus is actually requiring this tragic figure here, this man so possessed, to be honest with him. Tell me the truth. What's your name? He was requiring the man to confess that he had opened many terrible doors leading to spiritual bondage in his lifetime. This, this possession had not just happened to him because the devil wanted to do it to him. No doubt he had greatly sinned. You remember the woman who sinned and Jesus forgave her and said this to her, go away and sin no more lest a worse thing come on you. Intimating that sometimes when we sin, we can open a door and not realize we've opened a door. And that door allows the enemy in. This is why Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 4.27. Give no foothold to the devil. Don't give a place, tapos in the Greek, a geographical place. Don't give him a place in, in your soul. Don't give him one foot of land. So that intimates that you can open a door and, and the devil gets a foothold. And this man had opened door, doors, many doors, to the point that he was tragically possessed. What's your name? Tell me the truth about yourself. Can I tell you, dear church, you can tell the Lord anything. And I encourage you, don't hold anything back. Tell the Lord everything. Keep close, short accounts with God. Don't let the sun set on a sin. Lord, I did it again. If you've done it a thousand times, say it the thousandth time. Lord, forgive me. I'm keeping short accounts with God. I'm not going to give a sin any longer than 24-hour shelf life. I'm going to get it out. He'll always love you. He'll still love you. He's going to walk you through it. He's not going to let you go. His love does not decrease as you fall. He loves you all the more. He wants to heal you. He's not going to reject you. He's not going to turn you aside. Tell him the truth. So he said, we are legion, for we are many. Truth. It went from singular demon to plural, legion, which was the truth. A legion of Roman soldiers was comprised of around 6,000 men. This man is literally saying, there's thousands of evil spirits operating in my life. Wow. But now that the truth was out, there was nothing standing in the way of his freedom, and Jesus said, now come out of him. And they said, well, can we go in those pigs over there on the hillside? And he said, go. Now, you got keepers of the swine 
that are over there, swine herders over there who have seen this guy get set free. They're watching this nemesis of the town get set free. They're watching this dramatic deliverance. And all of a sudden, all their pigs start making noise and oinking and squawking. And they all ran at once down into the sea and were drowned. And I want you to know these swine herders were freaked out. <laughs> and, and it says, those who fed the swine fled. And they told it in the city and they told it in the country. They told everybody they could find what Jesus had just done. And the whole town came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and listen to what it says. And they saw the one, they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. They saw the one they chained up in the graveyard. They saw the one that they were so afraid of. They saw the one they taught their children to avoid. They saw the one, the maniac, sitting and clothed, and it is right mind. Now, that's an extreme makeover. That's an extreme makeover. Now, we've all seen before and after photographs, and I want to close with this. Let's do a little before and after of this madman of Gadara before we close. Before Jesus came along, he had no rest. There's people like that listening to me right now. The Bible says always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs. Night and day, day and night, 24-7, 365 a year, crying out in the mountains and in the tombs. He had no rest. After Jesus, we find him sitting calmly and serenely and placidly, peace in his soul. Before Jesus, he was naked and obscene. He had demons for a long time, says Luke, and he wore no clothes. After Jesus, he's clothed and walking in decency. Before Jesus, he was insane, having utterly lost his mind, gone off the deep end. After Jesus, he's found to be in his right mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's the work of Jesus. Before Jesus, his home was the tombs. He was known as the man of the tombs. But after Jesus, we find Jesus commanding him, go back home. Now, when I read that, it hit me out of the blue. When this guy came under the influence of demons, it drove him out of his house. It drove him out of his home. It drove him out of God's place for him. It drove him out of where the Lord really wanted him. And I've seen people come under demonic influence and they leave their spouses, leave their children, leave sanity, leave everything that is common sense and normal and right. And they go, and and metaphorically speaking now, they, they live among dead people. They go start hanging around with the world's people, with lost people, with dead people, in the tombs as it were. And when Jesus gets a hold of them, the first thing he says, go back home. I want you to go back home. Go back to the place you left. Your house is still there. I want you to go back into the will of God for your life. And he quit hanging around with dead things and got back among the living. And that's what Jesus does. Amen. And before Jesus, he had no purpose, no meaning, no destiny to his life. But after Jesus... He received a brand new assignment. Jesus said to him, tell, go home and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. This tragically demon-possessed man was so radically transformed that he became one of the first New Testament evangelists giving glory to God for what Jesus had done for him. So we see First, 
Satan's will for someone's life in the before. Then we see God's will for someone's life in the after. And there's no comparison. Can we stand together today? What a great God we serve. Amen. I'll tell you the difference. Rehab puts a new coat on a man. Jesus puts a new man in the coat. Jesus put a new man in this man's soul. I want you to bow with me, can you? I don't know where most of you are. I haven't talked with most of you. I don't know what God knows, but I want you to listen carefully. Some of you may have opened a door and you need the Lord Jesus to speak to the storm in your soul and to help you to close that door. Close that door. And He needs to speak to that storm in your life. You're not like that man of Gadara, but you're not settled either. You're not experiencing peace in your soul. You're troubled. Things aren't totally right, and you know they're not. I would encourage you to reach up by faith today and say, Lord, I'm asking you to speak to my storm. I'm going to run towards you. I'm going to run to you, and I'm going to bow before you, and I'm going to confess to you. And then, Lord, I believe you're going to set me free. Many responded last night responded this morning and I believe many need to respond today because listen, God wants to bless you God wants to give you his peace Jesus is the Lord of the storm he will speak to the storm and give you peace so with your heads bowed if you can say, Pastor Jeff I don't know if I open a door or not you may know, I, I open a door or I don't know if I did but I know I'm not at peace, I know that For me, Jesus seems to be at a distance right now, and I want to run and get right up to him. I want his peace. If you can say that today, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right here. Raise it high. Raise it all over this place. God bless you. I see you many, many, many. Listen, I want you to do something. I want you to slip out right now and come down to this front. This is your way of running to Jesus. Just put feet to your faith and begin to walk. Just say, don't worry about what anybody's thinking because who cares what they think? Right now, this is between you and God. So if you raise your hand, I want you to come. Come quickly. And we're going to pray a transforming prayer. If you need to come to Christ, do it now. And we're going to believe God to touch you and give peace in your soul. Teenagers, older folks, it doesn't matter. You come as we worship God. We're going to wait for you now.